I'm still recovering from the incredible journey. <laughs> Up in Winnipeg, I have a reputation for telling absolutely atrocious stories. Now, the only reason I'm going to tell you a couple is not because they're funny, but it helps me to settle down before I start talking to you about Alcoholics Anonymous, as I perceive it. There's a story about the drunk who was um, walking down the main drag in Grand Rapids, and uh, he, was, he was really wobbling. He was heading from one side of the sidewalk to the other, you know. And uh, these two nuns were coming toward him, and they were dressed in their uh, conventional habits, the black and white outfits. And uh, he was taking the whole sidewalk as he weaved along, and they, they kind of parted ways and allowed this little drunky to wheel in between them. And then they, got, they came back together and kept on walking. Nothing was said. And this drunk stopped, and he looked around, and he said, I wonder how she did that. another story that's in two parts, and um, I'd like to share it with you, and this has to do with a priest. This is pick on Catholic night. <laughs> anyway, this priest advertised in the paper for a bell ringer for his church, and um, a couple of days later, this young gentleman came in, and he said, I'd like to apply for that job as bell ringer, and um, the priest uh, took a look at him because he didn't have any arms. And uh, the priest was a little embarrassed, and uh, he said, well, look, I, I just have to lay it right out. He said, I've advertised for a bell ringer, and it means somebody pulling the rope, and uh, I can't help but notice that you don't have arms. And, <laughs> and the fellow said, well, that's no problem. Let's go up in the belfry, and I'll show you. So they climbed up into the belfry, and... This fellow, the young fellow, stood back and he, he eyed the bell, and then he ran, ran at the bell and he hit it with his head. And ooh, the, the gong had just reverberated throughout the community, you see. Anyway, to make a long story short, the priest hired him. Upon the next Sunday, he's up in the belfry and he's doing his thing. He's running at this gong and he's hitting it with his head and it's just go chiming all over the community. And anyway, he backed up and he was going to have a rest and he, he sat on the edge of the, the ledge and he slipped and he fell out and he crashed down on the parking lot in the pavement and the poor fellow was killed. And everybody was running around saying, who is he? Who is this man? And somebody went in and got the priest and brought him out and says, uh, do you know who this is? And the priest looked at him and he said, No, but his face certainly rings a bell.
Now this, this, this is true. This, uh, this, this part of the story is absolutely true. I, I told a friend of mine in Winnipeg that story, and it ended there. The next Sunday, he meets me. We're, we're in the foyer at the church and uh, after the church service, and he says to me, Webster, if you're going to tell stories, why don't you tell the whole story? I said, what do you mean? So he told me the second half of the story that I'm going to share with you tonight. We carry on with the same scenario. This fellow's brother applies for the job. He doesn't have any arms. He goes up, and he can ring the bell better than the first brother. So the priest hires him. And the second brother is sitting there ringing the bell with his head on a Sunday morning, and he too backs up, falls off the, the railing, crashes on the pavement, and everybody's running around saying, who is he, who is he? And they called the priest out and they said, you know who this is? He said, well, I'm not sure. He's a dead ringer for his brother. <laughs> He said, I hate myself when I come up with this thing. <laughs> Anyhow, now that I've settled down a little bit, I'd, uh, I'd like to, first of all, thank the committee for inviting me. I'm truly honored to be here. And I would like to introduce myself before I go any further, in case I forget to do that. My name is Grant, and I would like to tell you, with all the sincerity that I can muster, that I am a very, very grateful alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Very grateful to be here tonight, and very grateful to share a little bit with you. I'd like to think that perhaps whatever I have to say will have meaning to everybody in the room. But that's really not important because, you see, for those of us, Pat, and thank you, Pat, I really appreciated your remarks. I don't know where you're sitting now. I really enjoyed your sharing tonight. When we are invited to come and share with people, such as I'm doing with you tonight, I'm really, in effect, simply a messenger. I have a message to carry in terms of step 12. And I share that message with you, and what happens to that message, I think, is between you and the God of your understanding. I, I really don't have anything to do with it. I would like to think that whatever I have to say would have meaning to the newcomer tonight, and that the old-timers get something out of it, that's great, too except that I don't think I have as many original ideas. I think that everything that I say is something that I've picked up from somebody else because it's had meaning for me. Now, to begin with, it's, it's important, I think, for me to just lay one or two ground rules before I start in. You see, the best way for me to put it is that there, it's as if there were two me's. 
There is the me that you see, and I think he looks pretty good. Huh? <laughs> On the outside, I look okay. This is a new jacket, by the way. I think it's the third time I've worn it. Got on a nice pair of creased trousers. Shined my shoes upstairs before I came down. Gave them a rub with one of those duster things that they have in the room. My socks are clean. My shorts are clean. A little tight, mind you, but they're clean. So on the outside, I think I look pretty good. And that's the me that you see. But you see, the me that I see is the guy inside that I look at from my eyeballs looking out. And that's the me that I must talk about at an AA meeting if you're going to find out anything about how I think and feel about Alcoholics Anonymous and about the business of living. It's necessary for me how to share with you how I feel inside. And that's what I would like to do tonight. The other thing that I'm going to say to you is that I'm going to be going back to my earlier days and back to school days and back to the time before I ever had a drink. And uh, I'm going to be referring to certain things that I thought and I felt about at that time, but it's really with the wisdom of hindsight. It's like having looked back over my shoulder, you know. Uh, anything that I say was not any, in any uh, sharp perspective at the time that it happened. In fact, I stumbled and bubbled around until Somewhere along the line, I finally found you people and started to get some of the things straightened out in my life. So it certainly wasn't an insight that occurred at the time that I described it. Okay, let me start by telling you that I was born in Winnipeg 29 years ago. <laughs> I still have problems with the honesty part of the program. <laughs> it's another thing, you know, I've, I've got to, you know, I, I love you. I love every, each and every one of you, but I have a bit of a resentment, you know, because I, I come down from Canada to visit you beautiful people, and I turn on the radio, and some guy on the TV or radio is saying, and there's another coal front moving in from Canada. <laughs> anyway, I'm here to rectify that tonight. You're going to have a whole, whole bunch of hot air from Canada tonight. <laughs> anyway, I was born in Winnipeg, and I grew up there, and I... It, it, I don't know if you can tell from where you are sitting, but I'm going to tell you, I'm six feet four inches tall. When I was 14 years of age, I was already six feet tall. 
I look like a bloody noodle. <laughs> when I pulled on my bathing trunks and, and, and stuck out my tongue, I looked like a zipper. And big feet. You know? Have you ever seen a German Shepherd puppy, four months old? Jesus. <laughs> That's how I walked into a room. Huh? Kick the furniture. One article of furniture, I'd kick it on the way by. It doesn't do very much for one's sense of duty or dignity, you know. I had a bad lisp when I was a kid. If I talked now like I did then, this first row would be soaked by now. <laughs> How are you feeling, Grant? I'm sick. <laughs> you ever heard? Sylvester the Pussycat, that's how I talk. <laughs> Suffer and fuck a time. <laughs> Fortunately, my parents sent me to um, take what in those days they called elocution lessons. And um, I guess today we call it speech therapy, and I had that problem resolved, but at the time, it didn't do anything for me, if you'll understand. And I'm talking about how I perceive myself looking out. Strange things happen when you're 14 years old and you look like a noodle and you're six feet tall. I'm at school. I'm out in the playground. It's recess. I get into some kind of a, 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 a stunt and the principal comes rushing out. He doesn't say anything to the other kids. He says to me, a big boy like you ought to know better than that. <laughs> you tell me why a big boy of 14 is supposed to know more than a little boy of 14. I've never... <laughs> so anyway, I kind of spit my way through life and <laughs> kicked furniture and you know, carried on. Had a great deal of perfectionism. I know that I had to do everything right. I've heard a definition of per perfectionism and that is that uh, perfectionism is a fear of making a mistake. And that was certainly true of me. I I would rather not do something because if I didn't do it, then I would not make a mistake. And I had a peculiar logic, you see. I take a look around this room and uh, I see a bunch of smiling, happy faces. And I know that each and every one of you in this room are made up of a little bit of very endearing qualities that makes you the person that you are and you also have your weaknesses and your failings and your shortcomings 
But you see, I didn't allow myself to fall into that category. Because if I made a mistake, that would mean failure. So therefore, I went through life, and if something good happened to me, I'd say, gee, I'm lucky. And if something bad happened to me, I'd say, well, see, that's par for the course. Jeez, I've gone and done it again. I've blown at it again. That was the way I thought. Level of expectation. That's something else that height does. People expect more. I'm sure this is true because it happens even today. And even today I have problems with that one. Because I'm so aware of my weaknesses and my shortcomings. And I'm aware that if somebody expects something of me, that I'm not always going to measure up. I handle it a lot better. The other morning, my secretary came to me and she said, uh, geez, I'm sorry, she said, uh, I, I typed this thing up and I, I goofed it up. I said, don't worry, dear, I've already made four mistakes myself up to this point. So I'm able to handle it a little differently now than I did before. Anyway, I grew up and I became of age in time to get into the Air Force for a short while and uh, during World War II and then I was discharged and I had a talk with my brother one day who is 12 years older than I am and I bore a big resentment against him. You see, if you can, if you can just bear with me, when he's 21, I'm 12. That's the difference in the age at that point. And um, I, I perceived him as being the begin-all begin and end-all in my parents' eyes. Like they, now naturally, they're treating him as an adult, which he is, and they're treating me as a child, as I was at that time. But I saw him as some kind of a competitor, and I, I reacted to it. You know, he'd walk in and he seemed to have all the answers and he had a, you know, he was very suave and he seemed to have everything under control. And then I try to open my mouth and juice people up a little bit. <laughs> and my parents would say, shut up, you know? <laughs> Which doesn't help too much. Anyway, my brother's sitting there and in his fatherly fashion he says what are you going to do now that you're out of the Air Force and I said I don't know he said what do you think about going to university and I said well sure can do that he says use your gratuities from your service time and go back to school and I said well yeah, I could do that he said how about law and I said sure I can do that now that's how you make big decisions in your life <laughs> Anyway, I went to law school and I graduated and I came out and I worked uh, around Winnipeg for a while and then I moved to a, a small community called Swan River up in northern Manitoba. And at this stage I was getting into, into the booze really good. And uh, when I got up to Swan River, I, I started to cut a swath of no, 
mean report I'm here to tell you. And um, I'm the kind of guy, when I drank, I, I'm strictly a party type. Like, I'm, you know, I hear people saying that they, uh, they got ugly when they got drunk or they got sullen or they sat in the corner. Not me, I was in the center. It had to be A, a party, and B, I, was a, I, I sort of operated from the center of the thing. Now, I wasn't always too much in control. I always tried to be, you know. Have you ever had that happen to you? You know, you're standing there at a party with a drink in your hand and you're trying to look dignified and the glass slips out of your hand, crashes all over the floor. Oh, jeez. And uh, I had a tremendous capacity for that stuff, you know, and I, I, I could... Um, take on a snoot pole and I'd, I'd be sitting in the corner and trying very hard to be dignified as I slid down the chair, you know. <laughs> Somebody would see this happen and they'd say, how are you doing, Grant? And I'd say, oh, yeah, oh. You feeling okay? Oh, Very dignified, you'll understand. I play the piano a little bit. I'm not, I'm certainly not uh, of any professional status, but uh, it's what I call barroom piano. It's the kind of music that people like to stand around the piano and sing. And it's a great way to party it up because they keep you loaded with booze. You see, you get bashing away on the piano and they have all the drinks lined up along the top and you just play with one hand and, and take a drink. And the more you drink, the better you get, you know. This is, this is the way it works. And um, sometimes it was a little embarrassing, you know, that they're all standing around, they'll say, uh, what do we sing now? And uh, somebody will say, how about uh, You Are My Sunshine? So I'll say, nothing for that, so I do a big ripple on the piano all up to the top, and then I start to play it. And everybody's singing, you know, You Are My Sunshine, and I'm playing. Hey, am I playing? I'm, I'm right in there, you know. <laughs> And uh, after the number, everybody claps. This is what they do. They say, hey, Grant, that was great. Some idiot says, yeah, how about playing You Are My Sunshine this time? <laughs> during, the, um, during my tenure up there, I, I was appointed a police magistrate. By the way, you, your lawyers down here are called attorneys, and up there we're called barristers, except in my case, I was called a bar-rester. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I was appointed a police magistrate. They're, today they are now called provincial judges, and um, <laughs> I used to, it was a part-time job, I used to do the, um, the police docket and then um, carry on, I still was able to carry on with the other aspects of the law practice, which is kind of a laugh because I was never in the office, but nevertheless that's what I was supposed to be doing. Now I mention this really for two reasons. The first is that as a police magistrate and a, being a judge, up there, they're not elected, by the way, they're appointed. 
Another thing, too, I'm just going to digress on this. I don't know whether they do it here, but up in our courts in Canada, when two lawyers are arguing a case, they refer to each other as my learned friend. Now, the reason we do that is that we want to make sure the judge doesn't get confused and think we're talking to him. <laughs> anyway, I'm the only police magistrate. I, I used to try to qualify this a little bit, I guess, or rationalize it, and I just finally come right out and say, I'm the only judge or police magistrate in the universe, and I defy anybody to question me on this, and please do so if you think I'm wrong. I'm the only judge in the universe who had a still in his basement. <laughs> and that's as true as I stand here. There were two other guys in on it, and we used to make the most beautiful stuff you've ever tasted. <laughs> and uh, life was a party. I, I truly enjoyed my drinking, and I truly had a good time. And, um, you know, uh, alcoholism is first and foremost an illness. It is not conducive to a good time, although we continue long after we've lost control to try and convince ourselves that this is fun, you know, that this is really having a good time. And uh, that's certainly what I did. And that was a, a byline with me. Let's have a party. That was the way I operated. But after a period of time and for sake of brevity, because I have a couple of other things I just want to share with you, I finally reached a point where the, it's like a Chinese water torture chest, uh, test where there's, there's one drop after another on a stone, and after, when it goes on long enough, it starts to erode that stone, and that's how alcoholism works, you know. Alcohol is and, and the, the condition called alcoholism, it's a very patient type of illness. It bides its time. It waits, and it allows us, as a, if you will, to continue to dig the pit deeper and deeper. And I know that for the last year and a half of my drinking, I tried everything to try and convinced myself that I did not have a problem with booze. And I went through all the things that everybody in this room has gone through, you know, the uh, going on the wagon. You realize that we're the only people that do that? Social drinkers, social drinkers don't go on the wagon. They don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> we think differently. This is really interesting. This, 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 this happened to me a few years ago. I'm going to say maybe three, four, five years ago. I had a friend come up to me one day, and uh, he's not in AA, but he, he has some knowledge of the AA program, a bit of knowledge. And he said to me, Grant, um, do you still uh, go to those AA meetings? And I said, yes, I still go. He said, um, do you still read that book? What is it, the big book? And I said, yeah, I read it. 
He says, how many times have you read it? And I said, well, I'm not sure. He says, you know, I don't really understand you people. I said, Why, what are you getting at? And he said, you know, you've been going to meetings for years, and you've been reading that book over and over again. Something must have sunk in. Surely you, you could, now, now you've learned, you could go out and have one drink and it wouldn't hurt you. <laughs> and you know what happened? For a fleeting moment, I... <laughs> I'm sitting in the office and uh, a client will phone up and he'll say, and he's a, what they call a social drinker. He says, Grant, um, I wonder if I could have lunch with you. I've got a couple of things to talk over with you. So I say, sure. And we head out for lunch. I meet him at the restaurant. We, we're guided to our table. And the waiter comes over and he says the inevitable. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Would you like something from the bar? And I say, no, thank you, but I would appreciate a cup of coffee. He says, thank you, sir. How about you? And he turns to my social drinking friend who goes through this kind of an exercise. Oh, geez, I don't know whether I should have a drink or not. I've got a meeting at 3 o'clock. What would a meeting at 3 o'clock stop? I'm like, why would that give him pause <laughs> he says um, yes I think I will bring me a scotch on the rocks so they bring him this drink and he sips it <laughs> it's about three quarters full when they bring him his Reuben sandwich and he starts to eat. <laughs> Every fiber of my being is, is, is not, like I want to say to him, hey buddy, you got this all wrong. You know, <laughs> you either drink or you eat. You don't mix those two. And then when he's through, he gets up and walks out and leaves the drink. I, can, I feel like saying, hey, you, you forgot something. I go to a cocktail party. Two girls are sitting on the Chesterfield. And the, the host mixes up a tray of drinks in the kitchen and she brings them out. And she serves these drinks. Now, I know they're ruined before they ever left the kitchen because if you've ever seen the way social drinkers mix drinks, you know, they, they put a little wee bit of booze in the bottom of the glass, throw in a bunch of ice, fill it up with 7-Up, and they bring it out like it's completely beyond recall before they ever left the kitchen. And what do these girls do? They set the drinks on the coffee table in front of them and they talk to each other. <laughs> and then the ice starts to melt, you know? And I start to feel something happening into my, within myself because I'm aware that the longer those drinks sit there, 
the worse they're getting. Do these girls realize this? Like it was bad before it started, but it's getting worse. Finally, after 15 minutes, one of them reaches out, and I, and I start to breathe a sigh of relief. But what does she do? And she starts to talk again. <laughs> and at this point, six feet four now, I want to rise up, walk across the room, stand over top of them and say, drink the goddamn thing. Anyhow, I finally reached a stage in my drinking where I, I, I had to do something or I was going to die. It's interesting, I had to, the, the, uh, they had had a raffle and the, uh, the prize was a gallon jug of whiskey. Guess who won it? <laughs> I was holding forth in a snake room in Swan River and I was inviting people in and they were pouring themselves drinks and in the middle of it all my sponsor in AA walked in and uh, he had to be in the room for about a half an hour and I'll just take a moment he and I had done a lot of drinking prior to his coming to AA, which had been about a year before at that particular time. He has about a year more sobriety than I do. Anyway, he walked in, and because I had known him so well, and I knew that he was doing something, but I didn't know what it was, I, I had no idea what AA was. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous, this is true. Uh, this is what I hoped it meant, that you people would teach me to drink anonymously. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, because you see, if, if, I, if I learned to drink anonymously, then people wouldn't know, right? and then I could carry on with the drinking. That was the extent of my knowledge. He comes from another town 120 miles away, and his name is Ed. And he had come into town, and he had a few days to spare. I called him over, and I said, Ed, I think I want to do something about my drinking. To make a long story short, I, I invited him to come and stay at the house for a few days. Now, I didn't know at the time, but he had come over specifically to 12-step me because people had said to him, if you can talk to Grant, do it, because something's going to happen to him unless he, he gets this program. So anyway, I played right into his hand. And it was a mistake, you see, and you'll all identify with this. One half of my brain, after I said to him, I want to do something about my drinking, one half of my brain sort of believes that, the other half is still thinking, drinking, you know? It doesn't change just like that. So anyway, we get him, he comes down to the house. 
And he keeps talking to me about idiotic things like going to meetings. You're going to have to go to meetings, Grant. And I said, Ed, are you trying to suggest to me that I go to meetings here in Swan River? He said, well, yeah, that would be the idea. And I said, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, because I'm a lawyer. The logic of that escapes me tonight, but... (laughs) I don't know what what I expected an AA meeting to be. Like, maybe you had purple skin or two heads or something. Like, I, I didn't know what to think. All I knew was that I didn't belong there. I said to him, are you trying to tell me that I'm going to go and sit with those people? I'm talking about you. (laughs) Those people? Do you realize that I'm busy ladling out advice to people? And I'm going to turn around and sit and they're going to tell me what I'm going to do about my drinking? There's no way that I'm going to go to a meeting. And he kept talking about the big book. And he kept talking about chapter 5. Read chapter 5. The only thing about the big book that I remember was that the printing was big. (laughs) I remember sitting in the living room. And this guy stuck to me like crazy glue. It was really funny. I'd stand up and he'd stand up. I'd walk out in the kitchen and he'd follow me out in the kitchen. I'd go down in the basement, he'd come down in the basement with me. I'd come back up to the main floor, he'd follow me up. I'd go up to the second floor and he'd follow me up to the second floor. I'd walk in the bedroom and he would lean on the bedroom door watching me. I'd come out of the bedroom and head into the bathroom, I'd say, wait out there. I stayed sober for five days on my own. Dry would be a better word. Unbeknownst to me, he had spoken to the guys in AA in Swan River. And uh, on a Tuesday night, following my last drink, they phoned me. And I'm not going to go into details about that, but it was really funny. And uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up going to my first AA meeting. And uh, I think that's probably, and I'm very serious when I say this, I think that's probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done, was to go to my first AA meeting, because I did not want to go to AA. I did not truly want anything to do with you people. And it's kind of interesting if, 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 you know, as I look at my life from a, a spiritual aspect, so many times I'm faced with situations that I don't want, and yet, by some kind of divine order, it's, it turns out that that's really what I need to do in order to be a more fulfilled human. And that's what happened to me, and I'm, tonight I can speak with such gratitude about having gone to that meeting, and I'm 
one of those guys, unlike Pat and her story and the length of time was slipping and sliding around, I never had a drink after that. I, I was completely bereft of excuses or rationalizations. After I sobered up, uh, the Law Society of Manitoba moved in because they were really concerned. They'd been trying to chase me down for about two years. And uh, they take a, took a look at my books and um, I was uh, disciplined and disbarred from practicing law in Manitoba due to, as they put it, conduct unbecoming a barrister and solicitor. I'm the author of my own circumstances and anything that happened to me, I am directly responsible. That was what happened to me. The Attorney General's Department took a look at the way I handled money. I have a friend in AA who calls it, I think, co-mingling of funds. <laughs> and the Attorney General's Department decided that charges should be laid and again to abbreviate it, I ended up in, in Stony Mountain Penitentiary uh, serving a three and a half year sentence. Now, you know, the me that you see, uh, I think I look pretty good and I don't think I should be in penitentiary. But the me that I see deserved everything that he got. I came out and I didn't have anything. I didn't, I didn't own a pot. And I, the only thing that I had was sobriety, which was probably the only thing that I needed. I worked for a number of years in the field of rehabilitation. I um, seemed to develop a quality, and I, I share this with some amount of humility, that uh, I was able to counsel with people and in some measure be effective in that particular role. After several years of, uh, of that work, I was uh, finally persuaded to make application to the Law Society for reinstatement, which I did, and I was reinstated as a non-practicing member. And uh, following that, I asked them if what I would have to do in order to get my certificate back. Now, again, I don't know what it's like in this part of the world, but up there it's not well, I'm going to say, I, I, I think that this is correct, although I would certainly stand to be corrected if I, by people who might know up there. Uh, it's a very serious offense to be disbarred and do a jail term, and your chances of getting back in are zilch, except that I did. And I took a two-year refresher, and after I passed the test, I was issued a certificate in 1978, and I've been practicing law since that time, up until today, and I continue to practice law. Now, symbolically, I think that that is a very important message in this sense, that if you start to think about it, 
I can frame it as a question to you and I leave the answer to you. I'm standing here tonight and I've been practicing law for, well, what is it, seven years now. There is no way that A, I should have been reinstated and there's no way that I would be certified to practice, but I am. And I ask you this question, given those circumstances, where would I be without Alcoholics Anonymous? Where would I be without you people? Because you see, in as simple terms as I can put it, I read recently that this is a feeling program. Alcoholism is a feeling illness. You know, as I know, what it means to be lonely, to be rejected, to feel the emptiness of existence. It's a feeling illness. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is a feeling answer to a feeling illness. Your love radiates towards me. That's how this thing works. You are the people that are responsible for me standing here tonight. Because if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be standing anywhere. Where would I be without Alcoholics Anonymous? You are my family and you are the people that I love. I'm told that they're, I'm not asking you to believe this, it's just something that I've heard and I kind of like it and I'm asking you to, to evaluate it in your own mind. I'm told that there are really basically only two emotions. One is fear and everything that is negative about emotions can be traced to a root cause, namely fear, whether we're talking about hatred or resentments or whatever it is. It can be, it can be traced to fear. But I'm told that that particular emotion has no reality except to the extent that I choose, that I choose to give life to it. If I choose to walk around with fear, it will continue to be nurtured and it will continue to grow in me. But if I'm able to reject it, it automatically disappears because it has no reality. And the only emotion that has any reality and the only emotion that has any meaning when everything is boiled down to its finest is love in a God-loved sense. I'd like to close with this. I, I quite often read it and I do so for me, really, because I enjoy it so much. And um, I'm sure there are many in the room that have heard this before and maybe have heard it many times. But I think you too will enjoy it because it's like 
the words that I'm about to read, at least for me, are like the notes of a beautiful song. Do you have Do you have a favorite song that you can put on your cassette player and you can play it over and over and over again and never tire of it? What I'm about to read to you falls into that category. Before I read it, there's just one other thing that I want to quickly mention. I've been sober a number of years now, and, the, and this is specifically to the newcomer. Don't expect, because you sober up, that somehow or other the panacea is there. We speak with a great deal of gratitude, but we continue to have enormous problems, even in sobriety. And uh, the AA program is not designed to solve problems. The 12 steps are simply tools that we can either pick up or not pick up in order to resolve problems. I continue to have mine. I've had somebody, a, a, an AA friend of mine the other day said to me, Grant, you know, when we take a look at your sobriety, it's been, uh, in many respects, more tumultuous than when you were sober. The lady in my life who I love very dearly is lying upstairs, very ill. I'm not sure how long I'm going to have her with me. She insisted on coming with me this afternoon. And she got down here and she felt that she just didn't have the strength to come to this meeting. And I love her in a very special way and very dearly. She's had three serious bouts with lung cancer. And um, it's been not a very good day for she and I emotionally. But the program is designed to see me through that, not to solve the problem, but to allow me to deal with it a little easier. Let me talk about how I feel about you people. This is entitled, To a Friend. I love you, not only for what you are, but what I am when I am with you. You know, when I was drinking, I, I love you, you know, geez, I, I'd get a little itchy about that. I, you know, I associated that with the bedroom or a back seat of a car, you know. Uh, <laughs> to talk to us about this. This morning I met with a very dear AA friend of mine. He's just a super guy. And he knew that I was very troubled today because of a number of things. And he said to me as I left his office, I love you, Grant. And I said to him, I love you too, John. I'm a better person for having a friend that speaks that way to me. I love you not only for what you have made of yourself, but what you are making of me. I love you for the part of me that you bring out. I love you for putting your hand into my heaped up heart and passing over all the foolish and frivolous and weak things that you can't help seeing dimly there, 
and for drawing out into the light all the beautiful, radiant belongings that no one else had looked quite far enough to find. I love you for ignoring the possibilities of the fool and weakling in me and for laying firm hold on the possibilities of the good in me. I love you for closing your ears to the discords in me and for adding to the music in me by worshipful listening. I love you because you are helping me to make of the timber of my life not a tavern but a temple and of the words of my every day not a reproach but a song. I love you because you have done more than any creed could have done to make me happy. You have done it without a touch, without a word, without a sign. You have done it first by being yourself. After all, perhaps this is what being a friend means. I'd again like to thank the committee for inviting me to share with you. I'm honored and I want to tell you as I look over the sea of faces in front of me that you have been just a delightfully attentive audience. It has been such a, an uplifting thing for me to share with you and I thank you for being you and I do love you. God bless you.